KUT's next AT Explained live show is April 3rd. Brand new stories about Austin's people, places, and culture told live on stage by your favorite KUT journalists. I've never gotten any specific invites from Steiner Ranch. And that's about the time Charlie chomped down on that chicken. I will hypnotize you into securing my law services. Join us April 3rd at the Paramount Theater for KUT's next AT Explained Live. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at austintheater.org. And we'll see you there. From KUT and KUTX Studios. Hey, this song listeners. If you enjoy this podcast, then you might want to check out another great podcast made over at our sister station, KUT. It's called Two Guys on Your Head. Doctors Art Markman and Bob Duke, they both like dig deep into the things you never really thought to think about, like fear and motivation or TED Talks or the psychology of politeness. And just a note, Art and Bob will be live at the Cactus Cafe on October 4th as part of KUT's Views and Brews series because they are launching their new book. It's called Brain Briefs, and it's based on the Two Guys on Your Head podcast. There's more information on this event as well as the show at kutx.org, and you can pre-order the book now at Amazon. Book people, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you buy your books. So enjoy the book, and now let's get started with the show. Hello, and welcome to This Song, the podcast where artists talk about the songs that changed their lives. I'm your host, Elizabeth McQueen, and this. This is the final episode for a while. We're going to talk to Eric Early and Brian Koch from Blitz and Trapper. And then we here at Team This Song are taking a break. We're going to use our time to talk to a whole new group of people about life-changing musical experiences. And then on November 16th, we'll return with a brand new season of This Song. So that is what is going to happen. And now let's get started with this final episode for a while. We're going to first hear from Eric Early. He's the lead singer and songwriter for the band Blitz and Trapper. And he writes songs that sit somewhere between like 70s rock and Americana and folk. And you can really hear all of those influences on their latest record, All Across This Land. It came out in October of 2015. And right around the time that it came out, the band came to KUTX, the radio station where we make this podcast, to do a live set in our gorgeous performance space, Studio 1A. I wasn't able to talk to Eric that day. They had to go to the club. But I did get connected with him by phone a couple of days later. And he told me about a band and a record and a songwriter that really showed him the expansive possibilities of songwriting. So here he is, Eric Early. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, I grew, cause I grew up listening to just like whatever my parents were doing. You know, yeah. It's a lot of folk music and then some church music and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I guess in, I guess in high school when I was a freshman, Mm-hmm. I just have such vague memories at that time. But at some point I heard an R.E.M. song, I think, because they were my favorite band, and they're the ones that kind of changed, turned me into someone that listened to rock on like a fan level instead of just like, oh, yeah, 
it was probably something in Out of Time, because that came out when I was a freshman. So Out of Time, that's the one with um, Losing My Religion? Yeah, it's a huge record, you know, the one that breaks through, really. Oh, life is bigger, it's bigger than you, and you are not me. The links that I will go to, the distance in Were you watching MTV? Because I remember that was just a big like no, we didn't MTV have cable. Oh, whoa, right on. Yeah. Oh, we never had cable when I was a kid. We had like three channels. Oh wow! Oh. Even in even in the like early early nineties. Yeah, there was probably five channels by then. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you probably do you think you heard it on the radio or do you did a friend? Yeah, it would have been the radio. It would have been the radio, and then a friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had this buddy named Josh back then who was a couple years older and he was into a lot of like these punk and rock stuff that I wouldn't have ever heard you know the kind of stuff that back then the only way you'd know about it was by you know having older brothers and stuff like that which I didn't have right oh, I mean because there was no, there was no internet. internet yeah, yeah <laughs> there was no there's no internet yeah I don't even know how people would find out about records back then other than you just go into the record store and look at the titles and the pictures and be like, oh, that's a cool picture, you know? <laughs> yeah, or, I mean, I, I didn't have any older siblings, but I did have, like, a cool older friend who right. introduced me to, like, The Cure and Depeche Mode mm-hmm. and R.E.M. And so... That's exactly what I had. He's my buddy Josh, yeah. And he introduced me to The Cure. Show me, show me, show me how you do that trick The one that makes me scream, she said The one that makes me laugh, she said And R.E.M replacement and pavement yeah all that stuff and the funny thing is that I could relate to it somehow just like dumb you know kid from this backwater state backwater town that, you know I was like and I think the reason I am resonated was because it had sort of these country elements to it there's pedal steel there was stuff that i was i knew and understood you know <laughs> did you grow up listening to it you said you said folk and some church music but was country in there too yeah that... yeah country music folk music and more kind of just the you know because my dad was into like count van zant john prine bob dylan a real singer songwriter like yeah more singer songwriter more kind of lyrical based type stuff and then he was also into like old you know doc watson and stuff Blue railroad train Going down the railroad track It makes me feel so doggone blue To listen to that old smokestack Drivers are rolling on Leaving me here behind Give me back them good old days And let me ramble down the line Yeah, I think I started playing banjo at about five. It was sm- it's a smaller neck. Right. My dad taught me to finger pick when I was real young. Basically, as soon as I could could actually do it, he oh. taught me the different picking patterns, Travis Pick and some of the other stuff. And so, by the time you were in high school and you heard REM, you, I mean, you were pretty probably adept musically. Like you understood oh, yeah. theory and you could play a bunch of instruments. Um, I didn't necessarily understand theory. I did a little bit because I had some lessons. I understood more just sort of the way the whole thing worked. 
And and also, I I was playing along to records a lot of the time, all kinds of records, you know, Christian records, church records, um, old Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Built to Real, eight tracks of like Bob Dylan. You know, I would just play along to whatever crap was laying around. So that way, I I learned a lot, probably the most, actually. One morning, I woke up and I knew a new day, a new way, and new eyes. And so what was it about R.E.M., like, as opposed to everything else that you had heard before? Because you were exposed to a lot of, like, serious, good, deep music. And then you hear R.E.M., and there was something, there's something you can touch, like, reach back and touch into the country elements. But what was new about it? Like, what hit you? Um... I mean, because I think it was it was rock, but it wasn't super hard. It wasn't like metal. Like, I never really had too much of a metal phase. You know, I, it was more just like, oh, yeah, this is rock, but there's also these country elements. And then lyrically, um, I just really liked his lyrics because they were vague and they were always talking about sort of these kind of weird, strange, decaying sort of environments and images and stuff. I think it more than anything just reflected on the place I grew up in. Oh, how so? I mean, I think that Michael Stipe was always writing about the, the South and its sort of decay mm-hmm. and sort of the darkness of it. And Oregon was basically the exact same thing back in the 80s and early 90s. Really? You know, no one had moved there yet. No one lived there. We, You know, it was 10 years behind everywhere else. And where I grew up was just this little, it was Salem. And I grew up north of town in a place called Hayesville. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was literally just backwater. Like there was no fashion there was no i mean we would find music five six years later you know <laughs> it was kind of like one of those places and for me the music of rem it just made sense in that place you know i mean there was a whole waterfront area that was derelict filled with old um train cars that people lived in like homeless people lived in and, oh wow i mean it was just a place that was cool and we would ride our bikes around and you know it was just farmland and then old you know the city was kind of falling apart at that time Mm-hmm. Now, in the late 90s, that all started to change, you know, and then, you know, in the last six, seven years, it's completely changed. And the place I grew up in is gone, you know, it's it built over. This could be the saddest dust you've ever seen Turn to a miracle I lie My mind is racing Always will. My hands tired, my heart aches. I'm half a world. You were playing a bunch of instruments when you heard REM, and you kind of related. It sounds like you related really to the sounds, but very like a lot to the lyrics and a lot to the lyrical content. I think lyrically, I always looked to Michael Stipe's lyrics. Their vagueness, their art, their poetry. You know, because his lyrics were poetry. They weren't so much just straightforward love song, you know, this or that, like you'd hear in Top 40 Radio. It was like these weird, strange, dark tales, you know. You're like, what is he talking about? And obtuse. I mean, it's really, yeah, yeah. 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 It's really it. hard to I mean, to they like... had their hits. They had their hits, too. I mean, Shiny Happy People. Stand in the place where you live. You know, and that was the thing, I think. He could write hits, but he could also write these really dark two songs where you're just like, man, that's so cool, you know? And was there a particular song from that record 
that you were like that one like losing my yeah, religion yeah there was a couple no there was a couple like the, the more obscure songs like the song country feedback mm -hmm. I love that song I was central I had control I lost my head I need this I need this paperweight junk garage And the song Low. You and me, we know about time, we know how things go, they come and go, they live and grow, they pass and go and glow and glow up and down. Another two dark, dark, you know, deep cuts of the record that most people probably haven't even heard, but they were just great pieces of just, you know, early American, you know, 90s Americana, basically. Yeah. So it sounds like around this time, around 14, that was when you kind of got into rock. Like, yeah. you went from country and folk and, like, playing banjo and slide guitar to, like, did you pick up a, an electric guitar around that time? And well, then... I, got, I got my first electric when I was, like, nine, I think, nine or ten, <laughs> just like an old... Not old, it was new, but it was just like a crappy $200 butt rock guitar. It was an 80s guitar. I mean, it was 1986 or something, yeah. 85, you know. Um, but then in about 89, my dad bought me, an, you know, a 1972 Fender Telecaster, which oh. is a real it was a real guitar. How, how old were you when you got a 72 Telecaster? I was 15. <laughs> and back then, of course, it was only $500. <laughs> <laughs> This guitar had been owned by one of the Doobie Brothers. I mean, it was like a real guitar. It was yeah. a great guitar. It was a custom. And, you know, the guy that ran at Jim, the guy that ran the guitar shop in town, was buddies with, with my dad. They went to the same church. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, oh, you got to come down and check out this guitar and buy it for Eric. So he did. And, you know, that's when I really started to play. And, and it was around the same time that I started getting into all these bands. And so, yeah, I, I had a really good guitar, and I was getting into rock music, and that's kind of what happened. Oh, it's like a perfect storm of like getting a really good instrument because there is something different about about a really playing on a yeah. really good instrument. I mean, it oh, just yeah. it it opens up a whole another side of playing and yeah. um, getting a really good instrument, hearing the right kind of music. It all kind of happened around the same time. It sounds like yeah, yeah. yeah. There won't be nothing left but faith, my dear, when the fire reaches town. Yeah, I've been up all night in my double wide Playing on my old guitar well, There's a red moon on the water, dear You better run while you still can Yeah, I've been shaking hands with the devil You know his fingers, they're all made of sand Ah, but Jesus speaks in every tongue Not just in American But when the forest burns, the trees all burn what it means to be a man. And, and this is Let the Cards Fall from Blitz and Trapper's All Across This Land. It's like a lyrical tone poem of a song. Like, I think I know what he's talking about, but then again, maybe not. Just like Michael Stipe. And I should note that Eric Early talked to me on his day off on the road, which is a big deal. I mean, when you have a day off on the road, you usually don't want to do anything, but like 
I don't know, what I used to do is watch like lots of Law & Order reruns. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to thank him for taking the time to talk to me. If you liked hearing Eric Early explain what it is about Michael Stipe's writing that's so inspiring to him, then please take a minute, go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to this song. That way, when the new season starts on November 16th, you'll get those new episodes delivered right to you. And like until then, you can peruse our archive and catch up on episodes that you may have missed, like... That episode where John Doe from X talks about how Leadbelly opened the door to the darker sides of human nature for him. And while you're there perusing and subscribing, we would really love it if you would leave a rating or a review. Okay, now on to Brian Koch. So Brian Koch plays drums and sings in Blitz and Trapper, and he's also an actor. Like, I saw him on an episode of Grimm once, and I was like, whoa. It's Brian from Blitz and Trapper. And Brian? Well, he chose to pursue life as a musician and an actor because, well, he saw his friends do it. Friends like Eric Early. I'll let him tell you about it. Here he is, Brian Koch. Well, this might be an... um uh sort of a non-traditional sort of response but when i think of why i started or how i started getting involved in playing music um i go all the way back in my mind to high school when i was burning for years to play and my family refused to let me have any rock instrumentation um because of its um satanic uh overtones starting from a very early age I got all my music, not secretly, but just kind of on the down low off of the radio. I would, I was like an insomniac even as a little kid, just recording. I'd have a cassette ghetto blaster up next to my head behind the pillow, and I had it on record with the pause engaged, and I'd wait for the song that I wanted to hear. And as soon as it, it played, I'd, I'd, un, I'd unpause it, and I'd make my own mixtapes that way. You would do that late at night? Yeah. That's that the is way such a thing. How old are you? Now? Yeah. I'm 40. You're 40. So I'm 38, and I did the exact same yeah. thing where you would put the tape in, and you would turn on your radio station, and then you would wait for the yeah. song. And this is before, obviously, I was old, old enough to be a working teenager, so I didn't really have money. And um, Could you have gone out and bought that music? Even if, if I had if the had money? money? No. No. And, I mean, some of it, yeah, because some of it was pop. I mean, I was as a kid, I, I loved everything. I would listen to New Kids on the Block on the radio. I'd listen to you know, the rock stations, kind of whatever. My family really only owned, um, they only owned, like, my father's collection was was mostly big band music and 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 predominantly lame. I like big band music, but it was you know stuff that I would never listen to as a kid, like like, like Glenn, real, Glenn, Glenn Campbell like Glenn, yeah. or Smothers Brothers, yeah, you know, stuff yeah, that yeah. was just not for me. Galveston, oh Galveston, I still hear your sea winds blowing. Still see her dark eyes glowing. She was 21 when I left Galveston, 
And the good music that we had belonged to my mom. She had like the Eagles and she would, would buy the occasional record for the kids, but my dad was dead set against it. In fact, uh, at some point he burned a bunch of the records. Your mom's records? Yeah. Pretty contentious. That's that's intense. And uh, so I had to do a lot of it on the sly, and like. And did you play music? Well, like, I played clarinet because I wasn't allowed to play the evil saxophone. Oh no! Yeah. Really? Despite it having the exact same fingerings. Um, my father, I think, he was just under the impression that sax was evil because it was the accompaniment to so much rock and roll in the eighties. Well, he's definitely right that like sex would probably lead to. And it sounds like sex. Yeah, it sounds like sex. It's probably it's like will lead to iniquity. Yeah. Clarinet's yeah, was, probably not gonna. Yeah, he was worried that it. I would get involved in some kind of sex crime. <laughs> I um, so so for going on, I think in in high school I started hanging out with friends who played because that was the only way I could be near instrumentation like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my friends were pretty well off, and their families would buy them guitars if they wanted to. And um, and around fourteen or fifteen, my friends uh, started putting together bands. And I think it was when I was sixteen, my junior year of high school, I want to say, that um, some real good friends of mine uh, put together a band. Um, one of the bands was called Havoc Cow. Havoc Cow. But they would obviously <laughs> just say Havoc Cow. And, and they all, um, you know, could play pretty rudimentary grunge rock pretty well, and it blew my mind. And I had never seen anybody in my peer group play rock music before, and it totally broke my brain because I was like, this is actually possible. Like, these guys have, haven't been playing very long, and they're really, like, to my mind then, very good, and they're playing, you know, in, in these, like, classrooms in school after school. And they even played at some concerts, and it's like... So it was within maybe a year and a half of that that I met uh, Eric, and he I got some of his demos and uh, was, was astounded that he was playing this really advanced, um, quieter, melodic music that I wasn't really into at the time, like, like more R.E.M. and 10,000 right. Maniacs style. And it was so good, it, it really set me on a different direction, paying more attention to melody. And then I ended up playing in my first band as, as a bass player with, with Eric, who's the singer of Blitz and Trapper. Whoa. I was 18 and he was 16. All the kids are sitting still, strapped inside the Ferris wheel. Wonder what they're gonna feel when they start to turn. So it was actually like Eric's music that kind of like it was the, he was the he was the first uh, songwriter that I played for yeah yeah, yeah. That's, that's at eighteen years old that's pretty incredible so how did you like finally decide to make the leap like to break away from what your parents were were kind of um, putting down like what was it a thing or was it just like this this is so good I just wanted 
do this? I, I, when I was 17, I started sneaking a guitar into the house and um, playing it on headphones so that nobody could hear me, you know, learning, trying to learn Nirvana songs and stuff. Yeah. But eventually they saw it, obviously, heard it a little bit, and they were like, this has got to go. My dad had previously said if I brought an electric guitar in the house, he'd burn it. And he didn't. Um, he... I, I, I called his bluff and he uh, he backed off. And so I just kept it and started learning how to play that, got an acoustic, got a bass. Bass was my first instrument in a band. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, it just kind of started to slowly snowball from there. And um, and I would say as, an, as a side note, the other thing too, besides those bands that really inspired me was seeing a high school production of Into the Woods where all my peers were also doing this amazing musical. Mother cannot guide you. Now you're on your own Only me beside you Still you're not alone No one is alone Truly no one is alone I wish Were they in, you mean in the pit band or like on stage The, the actual actors. Okay. And um, acting is another thing that I do and that, I'm, that I've always been interested in, but it was seeing into the woods, seeing my peers do it and do it well, um, I thought, that, <laughs> yeah. uh, that really inspired me just to start performing and to just to get out of my shell. So it was really coming across people who were your age, mm -hmm. who were doing what mm -hmm. you had this burning desire to do. Yeah. And like when you see, when you saw them doing it, it was like, ah, yeah. wait a second, like if they can do it. Yeah, damn the consequences, I, I have to do this. Wow. And it made you bold enough to stand up to your father who... Sounds like you could be kind of a scary dude. Well, it wasn't that he was scary. It was it was just invasive and and um, and lame. <laughs> he he's come around in the in the intervening years. Um, I'm pretty sure the, he had a moment where he um, saw us playing Conan O'Brien and didn't. I didn't tell him that we were playing. He didn't know. Oh, he just came across it. We had stopped talking about music because it was such a point of contention. Oh, wow. And he was literally lying in bed at night and saw it was channel surfing and <laughs> came across me playing drums on the Conan. And, and I think that it sort of shattered his preconceived notions that were pretty much religious. But I think also at the heart of it, I think he was just worried that I was setting myself up for a life of poverty, which I have, but that doesn't mean I'm unhappy. I know. Well, that's, that's the, the trade-off is you get to play music, yeah. which is like the, the beautiful thing. Yeah. Like, do you still have any of that early music? I certainly do. Music? Do yeah. you think you could send it to me so I could put it in the podcast um, if he was okay with it? I could ask him, yeah. That would be cool yeah. because it, it, would be, it would be cool to hear, you know, what you heard. And uh, what kind of made you think, like, I want to... I don't know that I have the actual cassette that he gave me that had um, the demos, but I have um, the first record that that band made, and a lot of those, there's like, I think, six or seven songs on it, and some of those songs were, the you know, demoed in that cassette. Yeah. But I, ha I certainly have a ton of that stuff. It's like, it's in a... That's in a shoebox that's, that's labeled um, the last cassettes on the earth. <laughs> Yeah. 
the less cassettes on the earth. Yeah, and it's got a uh, lot of old throwback stuff on there. So be one day it'll be at least blackmail material or something. <laughs> well, I really, I really love that. I, I love the uh, seeing. I mean, there is nothing more powerful than seeing other people do it. I yeah, it's, I mean, it really is why I'm here. I think doing what I'm doing. Totally. I needed somebody else to sort of pioneer the the way for me. For well, you it. have to know it can be done. Yeah. You know, like you have to know that it's a possibility. And I think so often, like when we think of music and musicians, it's like super famous people who are way, way out of our reach, who it's hard to relate to. Mm-hmm. But it's very easy to relate to like yeah. my friends up on yeah. stage or my friends playing in a classroom after school. Yeah. Like, this is a thing. Let's, yeah. let's and do I, it. And I, I, I think on, on a couple of occasions with those gentlemen, I've tried to communicate to them over the years upon running into them. Like, you don't, maybe you don't realize how important it was that you did what you did, but it was really inspiring. And, and they're all just kind of shrugged it off, like, oh, whatever. I just, but maybe you can send them this podcast episode and be yeah. like, seriously, guys. Yeah. Like, for yeah. real. Yeah. Here it is. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate you coming in and talking. Oh, I can't wait to cut these together. So, cool. thanks a lot. Welcome to work, my son, you're here just in time So much to learn, so many ways you can shine, yeah Cause love is forever, but forever ain't long, no It runs like a dirt road and it ends like a song, yeah And this is all across this land from Blitz and Trapper's record of the same name And like... How cool is that? Eric was inspired by Michael Stipe, and then he in turn inspired Brian, and like I love it so much. I mean, we've done some interviews where people talked about being influenced by their peers. Dana Falconberry talked about it, Jeremy Rogers of Boohoo, and both Jacob and Nick from Sunflower Bean all talked about being influenced by people who were around them, but like normally, we don't really hear those stories and we certainly don't get to hear like the guy who was inspired right after the guy who inspired him but i know for a lot of musicians being inspired by your friends like that's the story i would never really have gotten into performing music if i hadn't known jeff jones shout out to jeff jones i mean He was one of the first people that I ever knew that was really in a band, and then he asked me to be in his band, and then we played in bands for years, and, you know, I I don't know what I'd be doing if it hadn't been for him. I'm really glad that Brian shared that story, and I was really thankful that he shared those early demos with me. He actually sent me a cassette tape, which is one of the reasons why this episode took so long to come together. I... I was like intimidated by the cassette tape. I didn't have anything to play it on. I couldn't find anything here at the station. The tape player on our stereo at home actually eats cassette tapes. And I kept on kind of like putting it off and putting it off until finally I found that we were wrapping up the season and I knew I wanted to include this interview. So we searched far and wide. We found a working cassette player and we played the cassette that Brian made. Thanks, Brian. that's it you have come to the end of another episode of this song this song is a production of KUTX 98.9 in Austin Texas 
This episode was produced and edited by David Sanger and me, Elizabeth McQueen. The Eric Early interview was recorded by David Alvarez, and the interview with Brian Koch was recorded by Cliff Hargrove. Taylor Wallace curates our Instagram account and does a killer job. Kelly Seal is our intern, and she's killing it. Thanks to Peter Babb and Deidre Gott for all they do on this podcast. And yes, it's true. Our theme song is Mahout by Austin's own Hard Proof. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Our handle is at the song KTX. You can follow us on Facebook. And yes, we will be posting things on the social media during our break. You can subscribe to this song along with the other KTX podcasts, Austin Music Minute, Liner Notes, and Song of the Day on iTunes. Right on. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you November 16th.